You're listening to episode 79 with Dr. Sarah Martin, Director of Health Solutions at My Sidewalk. This episode is brought to you by Mazar's Women of Water Summit. Hi, this is Kathy Bernardino Bailey, Executive Director of the Greater Cincinnati Waterworks Department. This is the podcast that is demonstrating the power of women in the water sector. It's water in real life with my friends, the H2 duo, Stephanie Zavala and Ariane Shipley. Mazaras USA LLP, a full-service accounting tax consulting firm, is proud to announce its inaugural Women of Water Summit taking place on January 9, 2020 in Arlington, Virginia. This is a dynamic event promoting industry-leading women and fostering discussions around how to enhance the position of women in the sector. The Mazars Women of Water Summit will provide an effective platform inclusive of diverse global leadership and insights for the industry, as well as venue to open dialogue and career leadership advancement paths for women. This full-day event will consist of three dynamic panels throughout the day, three water talks tailored after the famous TED Talk format, and what promises to be an amazing keynote address given by Carla Reed of WSSC Water. Topics include cybersecurity, data privacy, diversity in the water sector, finance, water reuse, and more. For more details and to register, please visit mazarsusa.com forward slash women of water summit. This is a super fun chat that we had with Dr. Sarah Martin, who we actually first heard about when she wrote this blog for ELGL, which is uh, Engaging Local Government Leaders. And the blog was entitled To All the Local Government Agencies I've Loved Before. And this is what she wrote when she left the city life and it really resonated with Arianne and I. And we were also super pumped to talk to her because she comes from the public health side of water, which is an interesting take to hear and to understand. We also talk about how the struggle is real in the government world, y'all. There's multiple generations, ideological differences. Like, how can we make sure that we're overcoming these challenges in order to attract the best talent to government agencies and entities? And also, what are some opportunities for growth and change that they can take to brand and message themselves better to the communities that they seek to serve? Sarah is currently the Director of Health Solutions at my Sidewalk, which is a technology firm specializing in making local government data effectively inform policymaking. She was previously the deputy director of the Kansas City, Missouri Health Department, where she oversaw the department's initiatives to influence the social and economic policies that shape health inequities. Prior to her job with the city, she was an assistant professor of health services research at the University of Missouri, Kansas City's Black School of Management. Dr. Martin received a Master of Public Policy, a Master of Public Health, and a PhD in Public Policy from the University of California at Berkeley. She is currently a gubernatorial appointee to the Missouri State Board of Healing Arts, a board member for the Missouri Budget Project, and a Phrases Fellow, which is the public health reaching across sectors with the Aspen Institute. She also enjoys reading trash novel, using her instant pot, drinking champagne, hanging at the pool with her partner and kids, hip hop dancing, and reading the New York Times weddings and open sections. You can see why we get along. So without further ado, let's get to the show. So the first thing that we typically ask our guests is how they ended up in water and most tell us that it was by accident. So you weren't actually in water in the same way, you know, that Ariane and I are, but your work definitely involves water as a public health issue. So take us, uh, take a few seconds to tell us your origin story, like outside of that super legit bio that we just read. I thought I wanted to go to law school because everybody does, right? And then I took the LSAT and just failed it. Like it was back in the day, you had to listen to your test scores on the phone. And I remember like, pressing repeat over and over again because I'm like that can't be right I'm like 
pressing the phone closer to my ear thinking like, oh, that number, I didn't know that number existed. Like on the scale of <laughs> test scores, that is the worst score I've ever heard. Like uh, two, <laughs> two. Yeah, I'm like 50 or I was like, oh, then you must have 89, when 80, no, it's 159. Um, so it's very, very low and I had to reevaluate what my passions were. Um, I applied to, I opened the US News and World Report. I said, I'm gonna apply to the top 10 MPP programs. And the policy schools, you know, like it's, it's an awesome combo of econ stats. And I just thought it was really like heavy hitting analysis. And I was promptly rejected from eight of them, including the one that I thought was like a backup school. I mean, almost like instant decline. And so it came down to uh, Berkeley was the last one I would hear from and they were ranked one. And so I was like, well, that's a long shot. Like that's not going to happen. And I, uh, was accepted and accepted with a scholarship and told that there had been this push to focus more on the Central Valley. Kids from Cal State, Bakersfield, like had never gone to the school before. And so I just hit it at this like right prime time. Uh, studied policy. I had the really good fortune of working for Robert Reich, who was Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton. And uh, he kind of sat me down one day and was like, you're a public health person. You just don't know it yet. I was like, no, I'm going to work for the ACLU, who I'd worked for prior. I was like, I'm a civil rights person. Like, This is my life. You know, I don't do public health. That's like a woman's job. Like, that's what I thought that I was railing. I got, you know, like ladies work in public health. And, you know, I was an economist. Like, this is what I do, you know. And uh, he was right. He was right about most things, uh, almost nearly everything. So took an MPH course. Uh, just really fell in love, just fell in love with this idea that policy, and you know this in water, right, like policy rules everything down to like, how long you live, and whether someone's sick, because they have brown skin, someone else doesn't like, it's all connected to that. So I was able to, to tie those together, uh, stayed for a PhD, which kind of happened because I liked my housing. I, was, I mean, like, that's like a really unromantic thing to say, but, you know, I had this opportunity to study with like the best economists in the country um, who loved me and gave me a lot of grace. And by this time, by the time I was starting my PhD, I had three kids, just pop those out, you know, two years apart. You sound like you're in. Yeah, like I had great wage, like I was like, they're unionized, like teaching and research assistants are unionized in Berkeley. So uh, I was just like in a really good spot living in an international community. My kids were well taken care of and like preschool that was subsidized, like everything was good. And so I was like, well, this is a good opportunity for me to ask some questions um, and, and do some work that is just mine, like I have agency over. Um, and so I ended up writing about the economics of breastfeeding, which was like really an interesting like topic. And I'd be in these rooms with men, male economists who like didn't realize what pumping was. Like I'd realize I'd get through my whole research, you know, like design and all this like stats and whatever. And they just have these confused looks on their faces. And it took me forever to realize that like they didn't know you can pump breast milk. Like they... <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess I need to start at the beginning. <laughs> like, this I never, I wouldn't have even thought about that, that that would be like a, a gap in understanding of that whole process. Yeah. That makes sense though, I guess. Like they don't have story. boobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was it's just such a surreal experience. Uh, and then if I fast forward, it was like, oh, go on the academic job market. 
you want to be a professor because that's what you do when you get a PhD. Like you don't go do something else. Like you're, you're supposed to get a tenure track job and you're supposed to do this. And um, that's how I ended up in Kansas City. Had never been to Kansas City before I interviewed there. Uh, Robert Reich, again, uh, told me on my way out, he said, pick your job for the city and not the school, because I believe that you're going to not last in this position. And he said it with the most love in his heart, which was like, your first love is policy. Like your first love is government and politics. Like that's what you do. And, you know, don't try to be something you don't want to do. And I was like, you know, I, I'm a professor now. Like it felt so real and grown up. And I bought furniture that like wasn't from Ikea. And I was so well taken care of by my school. It was a business school. So like, you know, and it's a, the block school, which is like H&R block money, you know, like they were really good to their faculty. Um, but he was right. I hated it, honestly. And there was nothing they could have done differently. It was just very isolating, far from people, far from impact. That's what it felt like, you know. Um, and so I left for the city and designed a new job for the city, was a deputy director, deputy director there for a few years. Um, and we'll cover that, I'm sure, at some point when I walked away from that. And, and now here I am in a tech startup in a parking lot in Naples. Like, it's just kind of like a lot of transition, you know, and it's like my origin story is anything. It's like, it's like six months. I can't predict like six months from now. Like, I don't know what life is going to look like, you know? Um, and so I'm just like rolling with it <laughs> at this, at this point. Um, and my whole life is now like lift up public health, lift up public sector work and just like make it work better than it's ever worked before. And so that's, that's where I am. Taking a few steps back, we first heard about you because of a blog that you wrote for ELGL, which for those of you that don't know is, um, Emerging? Engaging. Engaging local government leaders. Um, it's a fantastic organization. Uh, I love the work that they do. I love their podcast, GovLove. Um, but you actually wrote a blog for, for them called To All the Local Government Agencies I've Loved Before. And you wrote it when you left the city life. And many of the things that you said in that blog really rang true our own experience of leaving city life, but you gave three like key takeaways for how cities should approach kind of like the next new hire or who they're going to replace you with. And that was create a culture of failure, pave the way and give credit freely and call out the bullies. So can you kind of like talk us through each one of those a little bit? Yeah. I mean, wow. I said some things back then. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a good idea. I was like, those are good things. It just feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, yeah, thank you for being so supportive of that. It was very vulnerable to like put that out there, but I needed that closure, I think. And uh, it was a grieving period. You know, it wasn't entirely, I want to say voluntary, but it wasn't like you could definitely frame it like, oh, she left for more money or she left to spend more time with her kids or like hike the Appalachian Trail. Like, I don't, you know, I, there's so many ways you could frame it. Uh, but it was really just time. And I think that that hindsight of looking back and identifying those three things was really um, healthy for me and my mental health, um, especially. Um, I think the hardest one is probably creating a culture of failure where failure is okay. I think we gave a lot of lip service to it in the city. Uh, we'd be like, oh, we're a fail forward culture. We, um, 
debrief the things that we did wrong, but it's like, that wasn't really happening. What was actually happening in a lot of, and this is across multiple departments. It's not just mine. was like, when someone would have a new idea, um, you know, the first thing out of someone's mouth would be, we tried that 10 years ago and it didn't work. And I was like, okay, well, why? And maybe we need to tweak it. Maybe it's a different context. Maybe it's a different, and you would feel stupid, you know? Um, and, and it's, it's also on the deliverer of the idea to have the humility to understand that probably every good idea you've had, someone has had. So like, you need to find out who that person was and lift them up a little bit and like praise them for the idea and just get them on your team. Right. Um, so I think it was definitely like on both sides, I have a tendency to kind of like talk first, then think. And I really had to learn to like stop doing that. But on the receiving end, it was definitely um, something that's like harder to operationalize. I think a really good practice I've seen in really high functioning departments now that I get to hang out with a lot of high functioning departments across the country is like this just standard that you do debrief. So if you have something like a HIPAA violation or a bad media representation of something like get in the room, it's blameless at this point, almost like a no fault divorce, right? So it's kind of like, you know, I'm, this isn't the time and place to reprimand. This is a time and place to grow and learn, you know, as long as nothing illegal has happened, like we need to figure out where in the process uh, we actually failed. And I think that comes with investing in process improvement, quality improvement, training for workforce, right? Um, and I know, and we had 200 and something FTEs, there were only a couple people who were trained in something like Six Sigma or Denver Peak Academy, like who could walk us through the process. Um, and that's, that's kind of where I would put some emphasis um, on the giving credit. I mean, that's just like, obvious. And I, there's something so weird, I walk into a health department or any government agency, I'll sit around the table. And it's like, it could be some random place in rural Arizona, or Utah, or whatever, Florida. And there's this vibe of like, a servant leader, but who doesn't get, it's not like they're being trampled on, you know, it's like, so many people think if you give credit, it means you're not taking some credit. It's like, it's not a zero sum game, you know, yeah. it's not like my cup yeah. is empty because you're just full, like we're all full together. And I know, I noticed this and I will say that this is anecdotal, but it's often the female leaders who like, I will notice, I will say, Hey, nice work on that housing report you did for the health department. And the leader, the director will immediately turn to some other person and say, you know, that was Marianne's baby like that was her pet project and i am so proud of her you know and then marianne will say well i couldn't do it without you helping me navigate the politics of the county like and you just see this beautiful symbiotic relationship that is does not mean i look down on the director like you should be doing everything you know yeah. or like why why is your staff doing all the work it's like once i've reached a certain point in my career and i feel it now often is like it's my job to like lift up others with me because I'm fine like you know like I I'll be okay you know but like gosh like getting a step up in that way like what a really powerful opportunity right and it makes us all stronger um and then calling out the bullies I mean it, I could talk and I won't on this podcast but like 
there were some really harsh experiences that as someone who was brought into an organization, uh, I inherited a lot of unchecked issues, like unchecked race issues internally, class, degree bias, like that had not been appropriately uh, handled before you come in and you're like organizational change. Like now we do policy in this health department and now we have community organizers. And we, all this stuff is like new to a lot of existing employees. Mm-hmm. When we weren't even talking about the elephant in the room, which was the fact that like, you know, you had serious misrep- you know, underrepresentation at the top or perceived inequities that are real and they're powerful. Yeah. And there were like multiple like whistleblowers, like, like anonymous complaints that I'm like embezzling funds. Like, I don't know, like it was just, it was really toxic and uh, unhealthy. And, and like that is easily fixed. Like we could fix it, but we're afraid because we did not deal with the underlying root causes. Um, and, and then even in our best opportunity, our, our like best try, to deal with that stuff so it's like okay let's do an implicit bias training i mean the the purpose is great the intent is beautiful but like were we ready absolutely not because what did we get people raising their hands all the way through the training being like what about reverse racism you know like you're like what about white history month or whatever you know and it's like oh gosh we really underestimated how deep these issues were you know and so i really do believe it's like it is a leader's job to, especially if they're of a dominant culture, if they're like uh, someone with a lot of privilege, like it's their job to ally the, the rest of us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's my job, it's my job to know when to step away, right? Which is like, hey, I have some compassion and empathy for everything that happened before and all the women of color who were looked over for this job. And like, I get it. And maybe the best thing for me to do for the strength and health of the organization long-term is to go do something else for a while because I become a pariah, you know, and I meaning the Royal eye, like anyone in that position, um, it's time to go do something else for a minute because I don't think that this, there's any end to this, that it works for everybody to like try again, you know? Yeah, for sure. And um, the fact The way that you talk about it in terms of grieving and how it was not an easy choice. I mean, that was something that really resonated with us was feeling like we're walking away from unfinished business or unfinished work more more so and that we hadn't like accomplished all the things we wanted to accomplish. And also, um, we just, we loved the people that we worked with and we loved the work that we were doing. We just saw this kind of bigger mission that we wanted to take on and um and that coupling with um some bullies yeah there were definitely yeah, some bullies yeah. there's like you know what this may be the right time to go yeah um yeah and I, I think the hardest thing for just us and our and our health is like finding empathy like and mm-hmm. that's another ELG health blog post I wrote but like empathy is at the core of like us surviving I, mm-hmm. I love my old boss like I understand why he made the choices he did he has been good to me like but like if I don't empathize or have compassion for even the bullies like I will just be a bitter resentful hag right <laughs> like to the people that I love you know like 
and I wasn't fun to be around for my kids, for like my partner and I was in this like new relationship, you know, post marriage. Like I was in this new relationship with someone who like really respected what I did, but then I'd come home to him and it would be like, I'm just carrying all of that poison with me, you know? And it's like to unpack that is still happening, right? Like I cried when I left. I'm a crier. My goodness. Like I'm a crier. I cried getting my nails done this morning, watching the news. Like, like I was, I cried even just seeing like the title on my parking spot as I was leaving and cleaning out my office. Like I felt like at that moment I had this decision. It was just like, I could go to this tech startup that I'd already worked with that I was like, I could grow a business. How fun would that be? Or I was offered a director position for a health department that was five times the size of this place that I was coming from. And I chose the startup because I didn't think I was emotionally capable of supporting 4 million people. Oh, like gosh. in a place that was like the sickest place in America. Like I, that just, that was not fair to them. It wasn't fair to the people I love. It's not like, uh, and that I felt like a sellout, you know, like I felt oh, yeah. ashamed. And even at our last national conference, it just happened. We were in Orlando last month and I was a vendor for the first time. You know, I, yeah, yeah right. I had a panel and I had some speaking gigs and I still stay in the field. Like I'm still connected and, contributing but from a private sector perspective and it just felt gross like I was jealous but that was also relieved like I felt so many things and I came back and the first thing I did was like get in a fight with my partner like (laughs) and it was like so it was so embarrassing because I couldn't I could not he'll listen to this right like I couldn't communicate to him that I was like I'm sad but why am I sad? Life is great. Like, look at your bio. Look at your kids are beautiful. Like, you know, like everyone's healthy, but it just felt hard. It was really hard. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a process as you guys know, like grief is a process and, uh, I'm still in it, I guess sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. We get it. I mean, the struggle is real, especially in the government world. Um, There are multiple generational and ideology differences that are playing out in the workforce right now even. So what are some of the biggest struggles that you think government face in, attract, in attracting top talent? I almost mm-hmm. said we have to. <laughs> attracting, <laughs> not trapping. <laughs> not trapping. <laughs> well, that too. Uh, I think um, we have to stop with this farce that it's pay. Because like, it's not. like everybody was like, she's leaving to make money. And I was like, no, actually I took a pay cut for this position. Like long-term. Yeah. I might pay my student loans off one day. It's a startup when we are acquired, like I'm very comfortable. Right. Like, and that is never in my family. Wealth generation is not a thing. Like income's a thing, but wealth is like, that's never happening. Right. Yeah. So like this idea that, Oh, we're government. So we can't pay. It's like, that is, I, don't know what the rating is of this podcast that's bs right like uh like because i look at the salary scale especially for city government um city and county you know not state employees like they're very underpaid um federal as well but like local government and i would say especially in water public work right economic development health like we have some really good salaries. I don't know most jobs. Like I don't know of a job 
where you come in and you could probably like afford a good life being an inspector, right? Or like, I mean, an entry level senior administrative assistant or analyst, like that's cool. And you are important. You get free tickets to galas and you like have this responsibility and persona of like a servant, you know, like a, like a city person, a government person. And the reason people are leaving is because they feel stifled, right? They see inefficiencies in the system. I'll give you an example. We have like a senior IT specialist. Their literal job is to take a ticket for a request and pass it to someone else. Like, and that person is getting paid 80 grand plus fringe because the pay system's based on tenure, not merit. So you have younger employees who are like, well, damn, I have to stay 30 years to like make like a little bit more than I'm making now. And that job is clearly not useful. Why don't we take and develop that employee? So, you know, the employee's been there a long time to do the things that we need to do now because the field has transformed, like public health especially has transformed. We do life differently than we did 30 years ago. I'm not saying force everyone to retire. I'm saying give them skills to contribute in this new way of doing things. And so I think when younger people see this waste, I think we have, and I think based on everything that's happened, I mean, like by the time we hear this podcast, maybe more horrible things have happened, but like we might have a different sense of our value of time spent, our mortality, our lifespan. Like the world is scary you know and so we think every day like we're like a yolo generation right like i'm almost 40 so i can still say this because i love <laughs> drake anyone who spends any time on my twitter timeline knows like drake is my go-to gift mentor you know like the lyrics i read like it's the bible or something like it's supposed to define some sort of life choices out of the drake lyrics but like that is how we feel and it's not petty and it's not flimsy it's like actual like we value quality and i think that's what governments need to do and there's great examples there's great examples all over the country of government agencies that uh take that bureaucracy and live with it but also like have a spirit of innovation and excitement and fun like we don't have fun like i (laughs) dreaded every single conference room birthday party christmas or holiday party ugly sweater contest like i i don't know who enjoyed it like you know except the people who put it on and it's like i'm eating like you can't drink like you know i don't know it's just it was just, like, just such a strange environment like how would we attract people who are living life in a different way you know it's hard for sure. And, you know, I agree with your point on, on pay. We, you know, that's one of the things that we're actually promoting as we try to attract more workforce is that all things considered, um, you know, we do, we do offer pretty like reasonable, reasonable pay in the government world, in the water world, but it's going to take more than that to get people to stay. And it's really more about kind of becoming more mission driven uh, because especially for us, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you probably felt this in public health, but especially for us working in uh, with water is also public health, but the environment as well, that we are like making the world a better place. And that's something that resonates with 
the younger generations, but just kind of getting out of our way and, and letting us like getting out of our own way and letting us kind of like own that more. And, um, because I feel like people need more than people need more than just money, like to stay there needs to be, they need to feel like they have purpose too. So I always thought that that was kind of a key part in, in government is that you are a public servant and you are serving the greater good and just being able to talk more about that. Yeah, I think that there's always this great analogy. It's from one of those like leadership books you read in school, like um, about like a toaster factory. And if your job is to put the little springy thing like in the handle and you are just told like your job is to put the springy thing in the handle and not think that your job is to provide breakfast for families every morning. Like it is about and that and they wrote that in like the 60s so it's not like the millennials invented purpose-driven work like yeah everyone wants to feel connected to something greater than themselves and what better place than government like i miss that every day i miss walking through the streets and just being like this is my city like i get to do this every day and i still like and you know going back to the grieving it's like there were policies we passed that have died since then but there are things that persist and it's like in that one campaign like we passed opioid legislation at the local level like we passed rental inspections for substandard housing like those things will last generations and you know you think about that stability but also purpose we should have people just knocking down the doors to work in local government and i think that that's why elgl for instance is so important to the field because they show that like you can be purpose driven and efficient and have fun at the same time and that it does exist. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, what are some of the biggest opportunities for growth and change you see when it comes to government agencies or government programs, brand, and message themselves to communities where they seek to serve? Oh, yikes. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, our branding can leave people a little wanting. You know, we don't always do the best job yeah. without a government. Uh, I almost hope they don't figure it out because that's why we are so successful as a company because <laughs> like, uh, like we fill that space uh, between like data and storytelling and marketing of government um, but here's like I used to work for uh, Alameda County Health Department which is located in Oakland California and when we were working to do research with the university and we would go into these um, kind of oppressed communities, right? And uh, communities that have just been like completely decimated by arenas where sports teams disappear. That's, I'm very sensitive about that. Uh, you know, highways that were like bisecting predominantly like black middle-class neighborhoods, like that those were choices that were made, you know, policy choices that were made. So we show up with a clipboard, like take my health survey. <laughs> no one's talking to us. One, yeah. because they don't trust yeah. us nor should they because everything that ruined their neighborhoods like we did that like we represent the very people who were behind Tuskegee or forced sterilization or building a freeway you know like the we we did that um i don't know if you call them freeways like i call them that's like a very california thing i don't know uh, highways interstates for the rest of your audience <laughs> um so but we did that and so i think that any good branding campaign starts with a humility check, right? Just like, how do we currently resonate? And I will tell you that like we, uh, my communications 
and marketing team uh, in Kansas City were just, I mean, I just had a, I had a lot of brains, right, who were thinking about branding. So we bring this brand strategy uh, where we say, here's what people truly think about us. And we ask people, you know, like describe health as if it were a person. And, Ooh. you know, the things we got back were hard to swallow, you know, uh, <laughs> nagging, and know-it-all and pious. Uh, self-righteous and I wouldn't want to be with you at a party right like I'm good at dinner parties because I know all of the weird facts about diseases and so like I get to tell people about foodborne illnesses all the time uh, and but that's like not it's like they would see us coming and turn the other way because what they thought we were going to do was take away their fun or yeah. bill them for water or you know build a gas station next to their house like we didn't have a good, we don't have a good reputation. So I think it starts with that humility check. And it also starts with like sucking it up and taking some private sector, like taking, taking something off the shelf, right. Of the people who are killing it right now. Like, you know, what's killing it. The soda industry, <laughs> you know, Jewel. like, you know, like Jewel has become a verb. Like, and I say Jewel, like J U U L, right. Like that, how quickly did that happen? What are they doing? Right. You know, mm -hmm. and how can we take the same tactics, the same marketing approaches, the same political and relationship tactics that that side is using to do it for good? And that's like, I will say that like a broken record, every keynote address, every speech, every panel I'm on, I'm like, look, like there are legislative exchange councils there with corporations on the board, writing laws, leaving a blank space for Marco Rubio's name so he can just like sign it and pass a law protecting stand your ground. Like that passed in every state because people like made it easy for people to do the wrong thing. Like how can we make it easy for people to do the right thing? And and then people are like scared. They're like, well, ethics and morals and like, yeah, but like people are dying. So like we have to find that healthy balance between people dying and like, always being the side of the angels like how do you find that space um and i think that's like an, that's a question that every agency has to ask themselves how how far are you willing to go to do what's right that's a pretty that's a lot of gravity to that question <laughs> like yeah. i can't answer that for people but i do know that we can start and what you know we do every day is start to just infiltrate a little of the you know user experience so walmart uh, this is my favorite example. One of our uh, folks who are on the team at my sidewalk, like one of the last things they did was design the Quiznos sandwich builder app or something. It's like, if we can make it so easy to build a Quiznos sandwich, like, can we make it so people can in, like interact with data or um, learn about their communities and empowering people to build maps who don't have any experience doing that? Like, can we just take those same things and integrate it into our day-to-day -day life in government. And uh, design thinking is another great great example. Like that's like the thinking du jour. <laughs> but like uh, my, you know, team and I went and got like certificates online and design thinking for free because we realized there was so much value in taking this like prototype approach to government problems. And I'm really heartened because I see that more and more across the country, like people taking those private sector approaches to public sector issues that i'd like to see more of that we're huge fans of design thinking yes we'll have to offline Ooh, i love a good post-it note 
Yeah. Oh, yes. That was one of my uh, <laughs> one thing I was super excited about in going through some of these lessons we've been doing on our end is like, this just means I get to buy more markers and post-it notes. So I am. Yes, yes. It's my jam. Uh, but yeah, I 100% agree in that. Um, and that's one thing that we're passionate about and try to do through our work is try to bring on people that you know, like I don't think that in water we're going to solve all of our challenges by just talking to each other about what these challenges are and what we can do. I think we're going to get the most creative and divergent and innovative uh, ideas by talking to people outside of our industry, which is one reason why we're talking to you because you even see things through a different lens that we can that we can learn from and learn new approaches. And so, um, I definitely. I definitely love that idea of looking at what other people who are killing it, what they're doing and <laughs> learning from that. And, you know, like who says we can't do something that Jewel is doing, you know, in the water industry or, you know, the public health industry or whatever. Like we can, we can try anything, you know, it's just, it's a matter of ideas and solving these like super right. significant right. challenges that we have. But, um, you know, and a part of that is, is being open to collaborating and partnering with folks outside of your industry. So we've been fortunate to work with a friend of mine who works in public health. She's a professor and it's been so interesting for us to see the differences in how our industry approaches water versus how the public health community views it specifically with the approach of the social determinants of health. Um, I don't know if if you can do that in the parking lot, but could you walk us kind of through like what those are uh, and how they relate to um, the public health community? Yeah, that's everything right now. Uh, and it's super simple, honestly. Like I can do this from a parking lot or Sweet. I can probably do this while I was driving. Uh, you know, that is going to be all <laughs> the social and economic environments that produce the ability to choose wisely. So uh, public health is often, and I actually see this across most government or human-centered agencies, uh, we're like, why does that person do this thing that they know is bad for them? Like, and instead, we need to be thinking about uh, how the choices we make are shaped by the chances we have, which is one of our favorite public health little catchphrases, um, like you know, and, and think through, if I have no other option, what do I choose? And that could be down to, and a perfect example is like um, buying groceries, right? So like you have a SNAP, you have SNAP benefits, uh, food stamps for those who don't know the government acronyms, and you have to make it stretch, but you also have to ride the bus, right? So like you have to ride the bus to the grocery store. And so think about the healthiest foods, right? So am I gonna buy a cantaloupe, uh, even though it's like cheaper, than yeah. something than cereal like yeah because I can I can carry five boxes of cereal like with one hand and my kid in the other hand and the stroller and like all that I didn't have a car when I lived in the Bay Area and it's like I used to like get three kids on a bus to campus you know and it's like I'm not gonna pick up any groceries on the way home because like I don't know I don't have enough hands like I don't have help you know and so uh partnering like public health uh partnering with grocery stores to create signage, which I normally am not like signage, that'll save us because I think most <laughs> of that stuff is garbage, but like uh, creating signage that says like, here's a light cart 
that's also healthy. So like mm-hmm. greens, greens are like paperweight, right? Uh, you know, dry beans are less heavy than cans, you know, and like all and stretch further, right? So I think it's that just like creating those environments where right now our grocery stores are stacked against you from a behavioral economic perspective, right? Like everything that's bad and expensive is at eye level of your kids. Like, and, and just thinking through partnering across sectors to really design better environments for decision-making. I think that is like the core of social determinants and you start seeing it everywhere. Like once you see it once you're ruined, you know, because, I'm thinking through why Joey D's lunch special is 750 and I'm thinking through how unhealthy that might be or why like it's cheaper to buy a jewel than to buy a smoking cessation, you know, program at Walgreens. Like that's that I'm doing a lot of product placement in this podcast. <laughs> I realize I'm also like across the street from a Walgreens. So like you can bleep all that out later. if You need to. Uh, but that's social determinants. And I think that that is the most exciting thing to happen in public health is this awakening. And it just means you have to make more friends. And so when you do, you know, your strength finder or 2.0 or whatever people like to do, you know, and you're assessing the quality of your team. You know, what one thing we saw in the health department is we were really weak uh, in the staff among influencing sector, you know, like building relationships, convincing people, communicating. And that that is like, okay, now we know we need to build up those skills because that's where cross-sector work actually flourishes is when people are able to like convince you that it's in your best interest to help this. Because in the end, it's the cheapest thing to do. Like if we want to talk, you know, fiscally responsible, like you might as well invest in low cost alternatives Mm -hmm. rather than go down the road and end up in the emergency department and it's costing everybody, everybody an arm and a leg to do that. Yeah, for sure. Those preventative, just make it easier for people to uh, make the better decision to begin with. So, well, you simplified that because, um, and I'm glad I thought we were going to go like, um, and I can do it in a car and I can do it with a jar and I can do it (laughs) while I'm juggling. Uh, So you tell that, but yeah, so in order, we did a presentation for uh, my friend one time at her university. And so in getting us on the same page of what her students were learning, she gave us all of these charts and graphs and presentations about the social determinants of health. And um, you made that much more simple. And so I wish I would have known you before we gave that presentation because I could have called you and said, (laughs) okay, Sarah, what the hell should we say? Um, (laughs) So yeah, so I appreciate that. So as a public health professional, what are the issues surrounding water that concern you the most? Um, I'm not, I was so excited to answer this question because it's not even a lie. Like I'm not, and I have not lied. I will not <laughs> lie to you. So. But I will say that like this actually made me remember that water is the reason I got into public health. So water, water is at the basis of a really compelling mini documentary. So there's a documentary series that's core public health now, like everybody has to watch it. And it's called Unnatural Causes. And it was, uh, you know, from a group in California, but it's like national impact. And each chapter is about like a different kind of social factor. And they're super like compelling and emotional and interesting. Some of the best storytelling I've ever seen in public health. Hmm. Uh, it's California Newsreel, California Newsreel, 
um, is the company that did it. And I happened to be working uh, in Oakland in the Bay Area where they, you know, they're based around there when they were producing and releasing this. So I was really excited about that. Um, my favorite episode is one called Bad Sugar. And I actually show it every time I do, uh, I do some executive education or, um, you know, my team now like doesn't have a public health background per se. So this is like something I assign to people and I say, watch this. This is all you need to know about public health. Well, there's a movie coming out or documentary actually that isn't specifically public health, but um, if water and the way that we use water and recycle water and interact with water um, and it's called Brave Blue World and uh, the Water Environment Federation, which is one of our major national uh, associations, was one of the key partners in that. But um, they basically go around the world and I feel like it, I haven't seen it yet, obviously. I've just seen the trailers, but I feel like they try and end it on a good note. I mean, you got Matt Damon in there talking about how like this is nice. to solve like the one of the biggest challenges that the world is facing, guys. Like, aren't you pumped? And, you know, it's just, <laughs> just the trailer alone makes me feel proud to work in our industry because it's so much bigger yeah. than municipal municipal government. They're they're just one of the the pieces in the on the chessboard. Yeah. I don't know how you say it, but anyways, I would definitely recommend that one when it comes out in November. Just I mean, I think it'll give a great global and local approach to the things that um there's a lot of people out there trying to solve those issues now and it gives me a lot of hope. So, so what are some things that you do or one thing maybe that you do every day that drives your productivity? Uh, yeah, I got in my older age, very obsessed with productivity. I like, I know that there's like an app for me. Like I, I'm like, <laughs> you know, the app person. Um, I invested in a new planner that's based on my brain type, which requires me to do tedious things before I get a reward of doing something else. And so like that has been really helpful. Um, another product placement, it's called Evo. Uh, and then I know you said one thing, but I, I wrote down three when I didn't want to be asked, be asked this question. Uh, I'm a big uh, Pomodoro technique person. Uh, uh. The, one of the first gifts I was ever gifted by uh, my wonderful partner was a tomato kitchen timer, which everybody needs for to do Pomodoro. So highly suggest you like look into that, especially if you do a lot of focus work or writing or creating like it's, it's definitely it's like a game changer. And then I'm also like a big nerd about like mindfulness apps so mm. uh headspace is like headspace is the grandfather it's my favorite i use it to go to sleep i use it to focus um but there's a new one called sanity and self which is like created by women for women and it takes it one step further it's not just really like guided meditation but it's actually almost like a little mini therapy session like therapy recordings for like seven to ten Download minutes that now yeah series on like uh overcoming anger or trauma um, I finished one on like, give no Fs about anyone, what they say about you or something like that. It was something about like self-doubt and these just really beautiful, amazing women. Um, and some are like trans women, like there's like definitely like representation across race, sexual orientation, gender identity, but like it really is woman centered and especially for women in the professional world who are like navigating so much. I think I've, I just like seeing its praises everywhere. I don't care who knows that I need 
help. You know, like I've, I've got to this point in my life where I'm just like, man, if we don't model this for like the generation after us, that it's okay to be, you know, like seeking a better way to be strong. Like that's how I stay productive. Otherwise, like you're all up in your own head, you know, yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yes. And absolutely. Like we need to, um, stop feeling like we always have to appear like we have our shit together at all times. Like yep. we are all going through so much. There is, Oh gosh, I watched this terrifying documentary on HBO about it's one nation under stress. And it was about how Ooh. stressed we are in this country and the physical uh, ramifications that that's having on us. It's just, it was terrifying. And it just made me instantly want to find ways to relax. Cause I mean, it has neurological effects on us. It's just, it explains so much. So I, I definitely recommend that. I don't know if it's a, it can be a Netflix situation too. Cause I think I saw it on HBO, but it was called, um, one nation under stress. And it was, it was really powerful. Um, but yes, so thank you for, for advocating for that because I think yeah. that's incredibly important. Um, but kind of on that note of a call to action to take you know better mm -hmm. care of ourselves and be more um, to model that. Um, and I'm sure you had this before being in kind of the public servant realm as well, but we would have people tell us that, you know, what difference does it make if I make a change mm -hmm. one person? I'm not going to... that that's not going to change anything. And of course we disagree with that wholeheartedly. We believe that one person changing can inspire others to change as well. And you know, Hey, maybe ultimately change mm -hmm. the world. So what would be the one call to action that you're most passionate about that you believe could ultimately change the world? I recently, like if it just had to come to terms with like, just like step the hell up, like be brave. Like, shut up. Like, that's like the kind of stuff I tell myself, maybe sanity and self tells me that, which is like, don't be afraid. I, I just feel like there's so much like fear of saying like, man, if I say I want to run for office, will people think like, I'm too ambitious. Like, you know, like I got that so much like before professionally, you know, it's just like, oh, she's always stepping on people's toes or getting in their lanes or whatever other phrase like we use to talk about people who like, I want that. And like, that is like, that's okay. It's okay. Right. And it's like, it matters. It matters. Look at like what happened. I mean, it's, look at what happened in the like midterm elections, right? Like a concerted effort to say like, you have a story to tell and everybody has a story to tell. And I'm so tired of people feeling like their stories don't matter. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I just say a call to action. is like, I care about school discipline or like predatory lending. Like those are just almost symptoms of something greater, which is this reluctance to own it you know like there are sometimes I'm telling you there have been moments I have literally said dude if like Beyonce can do it like I can do it right you know it's like <laughs> I, mean, I don't know that's so dumb right Beyonce such like I mean like she's got it but like come on yes. like you know I was it, and it's so crazy that I have to say Beyonce and not the person working down the hall from me like and the more we are putting ourselves out there like you know, I applied for this like cohort of campaign, like girls, like girls, oh my God, the worst. Uh, she should run like women, like being equipped with the skills that other people have been born into. Like, how do we learn that? And that was that first step for me. And then writing about it, be like, no, 
I want to lead, uh, serve. Like I want to do that. And maybe it's not that for you, at, you know, if you're listening to this, but there's something you want that you're not admitting. And like, there's something you want that's going to make the world better. And it's okay to be ambitious. It's okay to not see your kids sometimes. Like, it's cool. Like if I have one more person who asks about my work-life balance, like I'm going to punch them in the face. Like sometimes I like to work a lot because I care about what I do and my kids will be okay. Like they're resilient and they're wonderful. And like, let's stop pretending. Like you said that we have our shit together. My biggest fear was going to target when I had three kids under five and someone throwing a tantrum because I thought it would make me look like an idiot. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I'm so concerned about how other people see me. It's something I struggle with a lot that I just like lose sight of the thing that I care about. And so that would be my call to action. I feel like you could have some bumper music. Like if you have bumper music, I would insert some Beyonce. So just, I don't know if you have like the licensing rights for that or like if you have to like pay for that or something, but like just a few seconds where, where it's safe. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I feel like if there's a word that I could use to sum up uh, 2019 so far for me, it would just be, it's more than word. It would be just like living my truth and just owning your truth and like, yeah, stop worrying about so much what I know it's hard. It's easier said than done. And I'm not saying that I've did that in any sense of the word, but, um, I think the greatest gift of everything that I've, my daughter's 13. And I think the greatest gift that I've given her so far to date at this age of 13 was standing up, uh, on the Bema at her bat mitzvah and just telling her to like be her and to own it and to like love herself and just like, don't make your life's decisions based on what you think anyone else wants or expects from you. Like do what is, does well with your soul and just like own it and love it and live it. And, um, I hope that she remembers those words forever but I mean obviously I'm probably gonna have to remind her because she's 13 but um, <laughs> that I think we make so many terrible decisions and uh, because you know we think we're doing what someone else wants us to do versus like what feels right in our gut or in Arian's case her bones <laughs> she feels things in her bones and so 100% I love that as a call to action so I appreciate that and your um you know, your honesty and being vulnerable enough to, to share that with us. So, uh, I definitely want to thank you for your time with us today for hanging out in the parking lot with us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we get to hang out, uh, in real life soon, but, uh, yeah, thanks again. And, uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll hear from you again. <laughs> thank you both. This was great. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Never miss out on future episodes by signing up for the Water Nerd newsletter found at the h2duo.com forward slash newsletter. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore h2duo. We share all of our new episodes there as well as in the newsletter. So whether we come across your feed or in your inbox, be sure to share episodes with your friends, family, colleagues, fellow water nerds. Help us spread the word. We hope you learned something new today, got a little inspired, or did something that brought you one step closer to your goal. Until next time, remember what one of our favorite quotes says, Those who tell the stories rule the world.